Welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark Gagne. I'm here with Trevor Clifford. How are you feeling today, Trevor? I'm all right. I feel like a green post-it note because that's the only thing that's in front of me right now, and I didn't prepare for what I feel like. How are you <laughs> feeling? <laughs> I feel like uh, Eggo waffles on fine china. Ooh, with real maple syrup, though. Yeah, don't don't uh, don't scratch the plate with your knife or whatever. <laughs> real maple syrup, what Eggos? Yeah, yeah. I I I don't like I don't like the fake stuff. My family used to make maple syrup, so I'm like a snob. French Canadian yeah. snob. Once you're in the northeast, once you've lived in the northeast for any sizable amount of time, like Aunt Jemima is just like not okay. Once you've tapped a tree, you know, <laughs> with your bare hands. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so yeah, a while ago, we did a segment called "Famous Readers," where we mostly mostly dug into the library of Art Garfunkel. And right. his, you know, ridiculous 50-year reading resume. Yes, we talked we about some other people. We revealed the fact that Art Garfunkel has been chronicling every book that he's read since 1968. Yeah. Um, so we did talk about some other people, but not really in any depth. I just kind of used it as a bridge to get to that ridiculous Art Garfunkel reveal. But mm-hmm. anyways, this week, I want to go back to Hollywood or wherever celebrities are, talk about a few different people and you know they're not not maybe people who are prolific readers but people who have talked about their favorite novels or you know novels they've praised or recommended in interviews and, and stuff like that okay so famous novel connections i think i have a few off the top of my head yeah i i got some i've compiled a few here it's got some really interesting answers um a lot of them are connected to books that we've covered uh, I think you're going to find it interesting. So hmm. okay. I've got to cite your sources. So I found this info on a few different sites, um, ranker.com, flavorwire.com, and uh, Huffington Post. Okay. All right, first one. Uh, Joan Didion, you discussed her when you, cover, when you covered the White Album? Yes, the White Album, Joan Didion. And I think specifically, I can't remember specifically which essays in there I covered, but there's a great one about ir- water irrigation in California. There's another great one about like evangelical Christians. Oh, and no, the one that I talked about was the Governor's Mansion one, the Regan yeah, Governor's yeah. Mansion. That thing is, that essay is crazy. That was a crazy story. Um, so anyways, she has obviously been interviewed a lot and she talks about her favorite works and everything. So her... What I discovered was that her favorite number one novel is uh, Joseph Conrad's Victory, which I have not read. I don't know what it's about. Conrad uh, did Dark, uh, Heart of Darkness. Heart of right? Darkness, yeah. Yeah. Um, but you might want to check this out after hearing what she has to like say about it. She she says there's a t- there was a time when she wouldn't even write or start a new book, start writing a new book until she reread Conrad's Victory. Hmm. And she said, so she's probably reread it, you know, a, a bunch of different times. And she said, uh, and quoted, the story is told third hand. It's not a story the narrator even heard from someone who experienced it. The narrator seems to have heard it from people he runs into. So there's this fantastic distancing of the narrative, except that when you're in the middle of it, it remains very immediate. It's incredibly skillful. It opens up the possibilities of a novel. It makes it seem worth doing. Hmm. 
Yeah, that is an interesting concept, like not firsthand, not secondhand, third hand. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> that opens up like the possibility, like, uh, you know, the concept of an unreliable narrator. Um, yeah. Which we were talking, which I talked about last episode with an artist of the floating world by Ishiguro. But it's that's actually that's really interesting to be like, well, really, technically, the narration can be anything if it's told by someone who doesn't even know the story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. super super unreliable um so yeah i might want to check that that out now i don't know uh what year it's from but it sounds great uh that's a that's a strong endorsement mm. i got another one here do you remember pop singer uh kesha of course yeah kesha TikTok. yeah her <laughs> favorite book is actually uh still life with woodpecker by tom robbins wow there you go drop yeah. it so it's interesting because this is how this is probably how I most maybe I think I think there's a few we've talked about there's a few different avenues that you go down to discover new books and people have asked us on Twitter and people have asked me, you know, in life, how do you find like the next book you're going to read? And it's like, well, one always re- leads to the next. Like it, there's no kind of like you don't really have to try too hard to get led to the next book if you look up stuff like this or like pay attention to to references in other books and stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, yeah. And that's actually her favorite author too. So, uh, some, some newfound respect from me. For Kesha. Yeah. yeah if you ever, discovery. if you ever run into Kesha at a party, you'll know exactly what to, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what to talk about. I'd be like, uh, you didn't like jitterbug perfume more. Yeah. Of course. Well, yeah. I mean, to me, jitterbug perfume is far and away. Number one. You should probably be like, oh, it's a, it's a close number two or something. Yeah. Um, all right. You're going to like this next one. Daniel Radcliffe. Okay. A.K.A. Harry, Harry Potter. Yes. He's been quoted as saying that his favorite novel is The Master and the Margarita by Bulgakov. Ah. It's not an uncommon favorite book um, around the world, but it, that that is a good insight into, into young Mr. Potter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, even though I'm sure he yeah. wants to escape that identity. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what he has to say about it. So let me know if you agree. I'm, I'm sure you do. Uh, it's just the greatest explosion of imagination, craziness, satire, humor, and heart. There are passages that have become everyday Russian sayings. For instance, manuscripts don't burn. If it had ever come out that this book was being written, Bulgakov would likely have disappeared permanently. That phrase stands for the fact that nothing is more powerful or more indestructible than the written word. Yeah, good quote, Daniel Radcliffe. Never, I didn't know you had it in you. <laughs> All right, uh, next one here, uh, Robin Williams. Apparently, he loved the Foundation Trilogy by Isaac Asimov. Mm-hmm, sci-fi, classic sci-fi, yeah. I've, you know, always been intrigued and actually... I would say intimidated by, because I've never read it. Um, Why would you be intimidated by it? You've read some of the most difficult novels. Here it is, though. Science fiction, I know how cool science fiction can be, but I also know how corny or bad it can be. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to find out that one of, like, the quote-unquote, like, best examples of it is something that I don't like, you know? Right, yeah. Like, if you read Asimov and you think... Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. If you read Asimov and you think it's lame, then it will put a black mark on sci-fi for, like, a while. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, for the whole... It's indictment against the whole genre, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I guess. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I get that does happen to people. I mean, I'm sure that like people out there, you know, they're, you know, I don't know, I don't identify with these people at all, but there are people who just like don't think Lord of the Rings is good. And and it's yeah. just like, if you don't think Lord of the Rings is good, then you're probably like fantasy is like not going to be your jam, like no matter <laughs> what. Yeah. Uh, I hate, I don't like dreaming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hate, <laughs> I hate thinking um, of other yeah. things. <laughs> uh, another one here. Um, actress Olivia Munn. Her favorite book is Replay, Ken Grimwood, which I covered uh, a couple months ago. Yeah. So nice. now I that's that's somewhat now I have something you know to talk to her about. I know all these conversations <laughs> uh, sparking up with the with the glitterati. <laughs> but actually, it, uh, it is a good point though that um, if you do read a decent amount, you can basically make conversation anywhere because like. Uh, I remember I went to a friend's we- a friend of a friend's wedding um, when I was living across the pond and stuff like that, and I met these Norwegian people. and And like we, like I mentioned in the um, when I covered my struggle, Nasgard Volume One, it's like if you meet someone from Norway, you can at least ask them about Nasgard because one in ten adults owns his book, <laughs> so. You, they know who he is, like no matter what. So little, like kind of details like that. It's like you can, you know, maybe not from every country, but for a lot of like a lot of conversations can start from books. Yeah, it's nice. Uh, <laughs> nice conversation starter. Um, you got another Harry Potter actor here, uh, Emma Watson. I think we mm-hmm. talked about her as being a bookworm, but uh, she has her own book club on Goodreads.com, and they've oh. covered. Re- They've covered uh, Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. So. Nice. The Hitchcock, uh, the secret Hitchcock serum. Yeah. <laughs> we are on Goodreads too. Our list of books that we've reviewed is on Goodreads. Yeah, I need to update that, but we are yeah. on there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I might be a couple weeks behind. A couple episodes I'll behind. That's okay. Uh, I got a twofer here. Joyce Carol Oates, the author, and Jim Carrey both said that Crime and Punishment is their favorite. Yeah, I mean, you gotta, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if many people's favorite novel is Crime and Punishment. That's like one of those books, like when I was covering The Idiot, Dostoevsky, it's like it's hard to find a one-star review because literally the only one-star reviews are not like disparaging this classic literature. It's usually like this, Amazon sent me a hardcover and it said it was paperback, you know, something like that. Yeah, it was hollowed out. It had sand inside. (laughs) There was a gun Um, inside. One song. <laughs> Another one, sticking with Dostoevsky, uh, both Hillary Clinton and Laura Bush have listed Brothers uh, Karamazov as a favorite. Who, Not to, the who, favorite. Hillary favorite. Clinton and Barbara Bush, is that what you said? Laura Bush. Laura Bush, oh, okay. Both uh, first ladies. Wow, that's that's weird company. That's weird. First ladies <laughs> who, love, who love the Brothers K. <laughs> Interesting. Um, uh... Morrissey, Morrissey's favorite novel is one I've never oh, heard of. Um, by it's called uh, "By Grand Central Station." I sat down and wept by Elizabeth Smart, and I uh, just gotta wonder if it's uh, de- very depressing to read. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I'm, I'm certain that it is. Um, along with my research, I found a really cool quote from uh, actor Bill Hader. SNL and uh, that show Barry on HBO. Mm-hmm. It's a really good show, by the way. Um, here we go. 
The first adult novel I read, and this is a favorite memory of mine, resulted from my grandfather, who was a voracious reader, taking me to Novel Idea in Tulsa, Oklahoma, to pick up a book for school. As we headed to the checkout line, he said, why don't you pick out something to read for pleasure? I went to the young adult section, and he stopped me. No, no, go to the fiction section. I was 12, <laughs> and this was a big deal. The fiction section is where all the books with sex and bad language lived. I self-consciously browsed the aisles, careful to avoid unwittingly picking up Fear of Flying or something, until I came to a paperback with a spooky cover. The title? Salem's Lot. Description? Vampires in a small town run amok. Written by the guy who wrote that movie where the girl gets blood dumped on her, so she destroys her tormentors with her mind. This one, I said. Lying under the eaves of my attic bedroom, devouring that story is a feeling I try to recapture every time I read a book. Nice. Who was that again? Bill Hader. Oh, Bill Hader. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I got one more, and then I want to do some speculating. Ooh, okay. <laughs> some wild <laughs> speculation about what's, whose favorite book is what. The uh, the author, Caroline Kennedy. Um, I'm not familiar with her work, but after reading about her you know favorite books i'm gotta check her out so she had some terrific name drops in this one interview i found and then so they asked her her favorite book of all time and mm -hmm. she replied with um that's an impossible question two books that have made me cry real tears were jude the obscure by thomas hardy and a death in the family by james aggie two books mm. that made me laugh out loud were a confederacy of dunces by john kennedy tool and lucky jim by kingsley amos Whoa. And that's a damn good... She covered three of my books. Three out of four things that, yeah, you definitely needed to hang out. Is she still alive? Yeah. I think you need to, like, contact her. <laughs> I know. That's a, a strong answer. Um, so, yeah, some, some interesting stuff here. I really got to read now, that Shoot the Obscure. That, that Now that you've mentioned that book, it kind of keeps coming up in weird, like, secret ways. And it's like, this thing is epic. Isn't it just a really cool title, too? It's a great title, what, but like you said, yeah, like draw, you know, Michael Ian Black has like place. a whole podcast about it, and like everyone, like people who touch upon that book really love it. So yeah, it's it rocks. Psyched to check it out. So now I, I want to do some speculating here. Um, All right. I guess uh, I'm gonna name a celebrity, and uh, why don't you take a stab at what their favorite book might be? <laughs> okay. Just, do you know the answer? No, I don't. I have my oh, own what? Joke answer. <laughs> okay. No, no. Well, what do you think Tom Cruise's favorite book is? Tom Cruise's favorite book is probably the one that L. Ron Hubbard wrote. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? Dian Dianetics or whatever? <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, his battle, Battleship Earth. Battleship the, Earth. Oh, uh, okay. That was my Earth. answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the one with the really um, bad John Travolta movie. All yes. right. Uh, what, about, uh, what about Betty White? What do you think her favorite book is oh my god i don't know i feel like betty white would be something super classic like to kill a mockingbird or something shoot you know you know i was thinking that too but i was i was thinking of something like what's the what would what's like the happiest book ever right you know? yeah because betty white is so like non-stop like yeah <laughs> just like stuff like that i don't know what's the happiest book ever that's I don't know, like Green Eggs and Ham listeners. or something? Some Dr. Yeah. Seuss or something? <laughs> What's the happiest novel ever? I, I yes. don't know. That's a question, question for another time. Yes, we'll post that on Twitter. What's the happiest novel of all time? 
What about uh, Gary Busey? What's his favorite book? Oh God. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like Gary Busey would be into like something like something really chaotic, like Hunter S. Thompson or something like like Hell's Angels or you know Fear and Loathing or something. My guess was uh, Naked Lunch. Naked, something yeah, like, yeah, like something like that. Yeah, yeah, all over the place. That might work. What about uh? Actually, you name a celebrity now. What do you got? Top 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 of your head. Top of my head, celebrity. Let's try. Let's try and guess. Um. Film director David Lynch. What would his like reading corridor be? Ah, uh, something spooky. Yeah, something like really dark and weird, or maybe something like classic, but also like gothics, like maybe like Frankenstein or something like that. Yeah, Bram Stoker, or may- oh, maybe uh, what's his name? Cthulhu. Lovecraft. Oh, T.S. Oh, yeah, Lovecraft, Lovecraft. I Maybe always something get, like that. I get Lovecraft and T.S. Eliot confused because of the initial thing. H.P. Lovecraft oh, yeah. versus T.S. Eliot, but they're like, yeah, they couldn't be more opposite. <laughs> or David Lynch might be into, uh, like, Shirley Jackson or something. Yeah. I don't know, maybe. I bet, you know, I bet the information is out there for what Obama's favorite book is. Doesn't he do, like, that book club thing? Yeah. Yeah. No, he's definitely... He's definitely got that info out there. Um, I think okay, I saw so the without show. without looking it up. What do you what do you think Obama's like top book would be? Shit, I don't know. I know Michelle's favorite was uh, um, uh, I think Beloved Toni Morrison. Hmm. So let's go with the same answer. Yeah, <laughs> the same. <laughs> the same. He agrees. He agrees. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, uh, other celebrities. I don't know. What about like, I feel like, you know how, you know, like you brought out like Kesha, how she's like secretly like, you know, a Tom Robbins fan. It's like some like reality TV star or something like that. Like Honey Boo Boo or something (laughs) (laughs) is reading. But see, you you never know. know. Yeah, you never know what they what they might actually like, because I wouldn't have I would have pegged um, Kesha for a Tom Robbins fan. So, yeah. Katy Perry, what do you think? You know, Us Weekly or something like that? Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, shit. I feel, like, I feel like she might be, like, on the... May Harry Potter, or, like, I was going to say, kind of the same wavelength, on, like, the, the, like, top tier of young adult fiction. So that, to me, that would be, like, Harry Potter, but also, like, that guy, what's that guy's name? Like, John Green, like, The Fault in Our Stars or whatever. Oh, John, yeah, yeah. Or the Jonathan Safran nor whatever oh yeah. wait wait one more that i forgot to put down I'll close it out with this um zoe deschanel her favorite listed was uh that book of short stories by david foster wallace like that supposedly fun thing oh supposedly fun thing i'll never yeah. do again yeah isn't that main essay that's about cruise ships right yeah yeah. And another one that I can bring up, and this is like a sleeper kind of thing, like a sleeper literary journey, but uh, Amy Sherman Palladino, she is the creator of Gilmore Girls and also The Marvelous Miss Maisel. And uh, Gilmore Girls is like episode to episode, you can go on a pretty heavy literary journal throughout journey throughout all of Gilmore Girls. 
because like like it's like pretty much referencing like constantly the main character rory like what she's reading and stuff but there's like some heavy hits in there like i think i mentioned on the podcast before that in the netflix revival uh one of her like boyfriends is reading nosgard volume two like yeah, yeah. in in the scene and stuff like that so they definitely make a concerted effort like she mentions i think she mentions john kennedy tool in one episode uh she mentions faulkner in another one um so there there are like heavy hitter re- literary references throughout all of gilmore girls nice also yeah, the so- uh her like the the grandfather character in that show You've heard of that series of books called The Decline and Fall of Western Civilization or like The Decline and Fall of Rome. That's like supposedly yeah, supposed yeah. to be like as big of a reading achievement as Proust. Oh, like, yeah, it's, I'm sure it's huge. It's like it's something like, you know. It's like reading an encyclopedia, but people. Yeah, do it's a full it. textbook. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. Nice. So if you're a celebrity listening to this, tell us your favorite book. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> our our massive celebrity audience. Yeah. All right. So I think I'm going first this week. Yes, odd numbers, episode number twenty five. Mark is going first. For all of our uninitiated listeners, every week, uh, we each bring a book to the setting of the podcast. I don't know what book Mark's gonna talk about, he doesn't know what book I'm gonna talk about, and uh we take it from there. So let me know what you read this week, Mark. We avoid talking about it beforehand. Somehow. Yes. <laughs> All right. So, months ago, I don't know what episode number, in the first 10 episodes, I think, I covered the novel um, Love and Garbage by Czech author Ivan Klima. Mm-hmm. So, he was the one that was born in Prague. He lived through the German invasion of uh, Czechoslovakia. And then, when the war was over, he lived through the rise of the Czech communist regime. regime. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had his books banned during the Prague Spring political protests of 1968. Okay. So, well, he, I, I mentioned that Klima was often compared to fellow Czech author uh, Milan Kundera. And he is the subject of my book report today. So, okay. going back to, back to Czech. Mm-hmm. So, to, it is a very easy comparison to make between the two. You know, they were both born in the same country around the same time. Uh, Kundera, he had less of a trying upbringing, however, so it's kind of interesting to see how their careers, the path of their careers went and, you know, comparisons between the two and and their styles and everything. So, um, Kundera, his parents were middle-class, you know, his dad was the head of a music academy. So he learned like musicology and piano at a young age. And uh, not to dive too far into his life, but he he was involved in uh, Czech like political world mm-hmm. for some of his career, and he was you know part of and subsequently booted out of the Communist Party several on several occasions, which he wrote about in his uh, his debut novel, The Joke. And uh, so his work, like Klima's, was banned in his country uh, during that same you know Prague Spring of 1968. And by 1975, you know, he had had enough of his of his home country and he moved to France. Uh, so he was actually stripped of his Czechoslovak uh, citizenship four years later. And he eventually, I think two years after that, became an official French citizen. Okay. So his work, 
Kundera's work is probably more philosophical than Klima. I'd definitely say that, having read something from uh, a couple things from both of them now. Uh, you know, he's he's most well known for his 1984 novel, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, which is the other, you know, Kundera novel that I've read. Uh, but today I'm going to be talking about the first novel that he wrote entirely in French. So, you know, he um, it took him a while to, I guess, grasp language enough to start writing novels in it. Right. And I'm talking about ni- 1995's no- uh, short novel, Slowness slowness okay imagine yes. imagine emigrating to a country learning the language and then writing a whole novel in that language <laughs> it's pretty I impressive <laughs> yeah yeah um it's a testament to his skill so and especially how the how the you know it doesn't come off as clunky or you know someone who doesn't you know, I'm, I'm obviously reading the english translation but right i was gonna say um, are you reading the original French to you? <laughs> Is there something you need to share uh, with me? <laughs> no. And I just said no in French. Uh, so <laughs> this, this, this book, Slowness, it's, it's about savoring and prolonging moments. However, I went against his message by reading it pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Kundera, you know, he, he ties the, in it, one of the main, his main kind of, thesis is that he, he's tying the speed of your actions to memory like how you would try to make a moment of happiness or joy last forever or you know mm-hmm. speed away in order to forget a moment of pain or sadness or try and you know get over it as fast as you can mm-hmm. so let me read a quick paragraph from the book before i jump into the plot imposing form on a period of time is what beauty demands but so does memory For what is formless cannot be grasped, grasped or committed to memory. Conceiving their encounter as a form was especially precious for them, since their night was to have no tomorrow and could be repeated only through recollection. There is a secret bond between slowness and memory, between speed and forgetting. Consider this utterly commonplace situation. A man is walking down the street. At a certain moment, he tries to recall something, but the recollection escapes him. Automatically, he slows down. Meanwhile, a person who wants to forget a disagreeable incident he has just lived through starts unconsciously to speed up his pace, as if he were trying to distance himself from a thing still too close to him in time. In existential mathematics, that experience takes the form of two basic equations. The degree of slowness is directly proportional to the intensity of memory. The degree of speed is directly proportional to the intensity of forgetting. Well... So this yeah. book, you know, it <laughs> it's pretty cool the way that he he writes like that pretty often. It's, and is there a story like weave throughout? Yes. So this book tells several stories of kind of a similar ilk, and they're split uh, two hundred years apart, but they're mm. superimposed upon each other. Oh, so interesting. Kundera is actually the narr- the first narrator in this book. There's like three main plot lines that slowly merge together by the end. So yeah, he's the first narrator, the author himself. You know, he's with his wife visiting a chateau on vacation, uh, which doesn't mean a castle like I originally thought. It's more of like a stately French home or manor sort of thing. Mm -hmm. A chateau. Chateau. So, you know, after pondering 
the thoughts about this, you know, speed and memory. This is what I read was pretty early on in the book. Uh, so he kind of ponders that and he's talking about what he's doing. And he, then he sort of breaks all breaks away into a few different stories that take place in like a very similar chateau setting. Uh, so one is taken directly from this old novel called uh, Dangerous Liaisons. It's a French novel mm -hmm. by author, uh, I don't know how to pronounce this, Pierre Chaudero de Laclos, L-A-C-L-O-S. Mm -hmm. I, I neglected to look up the pronunciation. So um, this was a very scandalous novel from the late 1700s. And it was considered like an amoral tale. It's got a lot of like sensual exploits and crude behavior in it. So this guy, um, Black Close, this author, he was a he was a military officer, and he set out to quote um, write a work which departed from the ordinary, which made a noise, and which would remain on Earth after his death. So this story, uh, Dangerous Liaisons, which Kundera apparently thinks is like one of the best books ever. It's one of his favorites. Mm -hmm. um, so this story, it concerns a Marquis and a Viscount who are, you know, narcissistic rivals with each other and they manipulate those around them and they brag about it and compete with each other. Um, and, you know, he, he borrows his slowness theory from it and he tries to show how like their hedonistic pursuits um, lack the slowness that, you know, ties happiness or enjoyment to memory. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I, I would need, I would need to kind of go back and check or reread this book. But my, my understanding, what I got from it was that Kundera is supposedly, he's reading, he's supposedly he's reading this novel, this old novel while he's on vacation. Right. And, you know, he envisions a modern version and seemingly set. taking it slow. Yes. <laughs> taking it very slow. He envisions a modern version of this novel set. You know, he kind of superimposes time. them on top of each other as like a sort of yin and yang. Um, but where, you know, the old story involves slowness, the new stories in the modern world, which moves too fast to savor things. For example, like... In the old story, the protagonist is involved in a sort of love affair that follows like a slow, very dramatic path. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of there's a really interesting section concerning both like the monologue of both characters, like or the internal thoughts. Uh, they're attempting to like prolong this exciting introductory period of their romance. Mm -hmm. uh, so and in, in this story, like the protagonist, like event, he eventually realizes that he's being used but, you know, he's left without regret in the end because he can still savor the moments that he experienced and, like, the strength of the feelings because of the slowness. Whereas the modern counterpart is, like, essentially unable... It's like Goofus and Gallant. Like, <laughs> the modern counterpart is essentially unable to control his passion and his thoughts. And, you know, he ends up ashamed and humil humiliated by his actions concerning, like, his sort of the woman he's pursuing and like his sort of romantic endeavor. And um, the modern guy is also extremely fixated on assholes for some reason. There's like a whole thing about that. I guess Kundera has got a little bit of like old dirty man in him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, at the end, like, so at, so at the end, 
everything kind of weaves together and that those two characters meet across their hundreds of years. Cause I think they're just kind of, they're just kind of in Kundera's head or whatever. And, you know, Kundera, he gets to apply his thesis once more where they share a sort of short exchange about like the night they just had. And, you know, the character from the old novel, he can walk away from his night with slowness and reflection. Um, but the modern character you know, has to speed away in shame. Like he actually speeds off in a motorcycle because he, you know, exag he exaggerated his night into like a bold faced lie to his friends and, and to this other character. Mm -hmm. So he just, he's running away from this experience. So I thought it was pretty cool. Like it is sort of like a philosophical novel. Like, yeah. What do you think about that? How does that sound? I think Pretty it sounds awesome. I think it's like structure. the like I think that the initial idea is something that you have to I I also wonder too like you said like this came at a time when he was writing like in his non-native language for the first time. So it's like what like that's a really interesting concept the thing that you read about like in slowness is what we want to remember in speed is what we want to forget. And I wonder if, like, that concept is any, like, connection to learning about, like, tenses in a new language, you know? Yeah, it could be. Because, like, when you learn, like, every person who speaks multiple languages will acknowledge that it's about, like, you know, going and, and learning to speak French or Russian or, or any, like, basically non-Latin-based language. Well... French is Latin based. But anyway, I'm no linguist. I don't know how to analyze this, but basically they'll say like, it's not so much, you know, it's learning vocabulary and learning sentence structure, but it's also learning about like a way of thinking. Um, yeah, it changes those connections in your brain, right? Yeah, but also That's just how to say. speak the language, like how to speak, you know, a language in general. I knew someone who, a native english speaker who eventually became fluent in norwegian it's like yeah the vocabulary is one thing but learning like how they you know incrementally measure their time and stuff like that is is like a whole different beast um and how they say it and stuff so i wonder if a lot of that came out a lot of the concept of this book came out of learning you know a different language a different culture yeah so um i mean this is it's definitely a book I would like to revisit. It's a pretty short read. It's 150 something pages, mm, nice. uh, but perhaps I would like to read that Dangerous Liaisons book first because Kundera gave it a, a very strong uh, support. Right. And, um, I think I so I I have a friend mentioned Dangerous Liaisons. Is that a book that's all told throughout like love letters and stuff? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Someone told me about that book. It's supposed to be really good. Nice. Um. So yeah, maybe I'll have to read that one first. Uh, and I, yeah, I agree with his praising of the virtue of slowness, and it's it's a, kind of similar to the virtue of patience, I think. Right. Yeah, it definitely made me think, like, from you just describing this, it's like, yeah, all of your probably, mo like, happiest memories are not necessarily, like, concerned with speed, you know? Yeah. <laughs> More concerned with, like, slowness. Awesome. Nice. And uh, so now to close that out, I got a one star review here. Nice. User uh, not getting enough 
or whatever that's supposed to mean. User not getting enough says, this isn't colon, just no. It's more like, okay, this isn't just no. It's more like, no. Oh, wow. (laughs) With 30 30 O's. 30 O's they used. I counted them. Nice. I'm sorry, Kundera. I don't know if we're going to meet again, but the bridge player in me isn't liking the odds. That's the one-star review? Yes. Wow. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, and then talking about bridge. All right. My one, I'll give a one-star review of that one-star review. That review sucked. <laughs> <laughs> no, that sounds like an awesome book. Good job. It was cool. Thanks. Cool. All right, what do you got? So, so weirdly, okay, I thought I was bringing something really sort of like abstract and very different. It is different from my normal reading pattern, what I'm bringing to the table, but so much of what we've talked about so far in this podcast actually applies, which is, you know, that's how that's how life works out. You put two things next to each other and find out how similar they are. So earlier on, you had said that Joan Didion uh, said that she probably wouldn't begin writing something unless she had revisited that conrad book which conrad book was that victory victory okay so i kind of have a very similar rule for a book that is really important in my life and it's something that it's a book that i revisit over and over for inspiration in my career but also in life like if i'm gonna make like a major creative move it's definitely worth opening this book to any given page and and taking a read um this book is non-fiction it's like self-help well no i mean it's self-help in a way but um no it's not self-help but this book is non-fiction which you know is extremely rare for me um I don't know if I've done nonfiction on the podcast yet. Maybe I have. Can't remember. I think I did. Well, Jim, Joan Didion is a little bit nonfiction, but um, so the book that I'm bringing to the table again, and uh, I'm I'm really kind of uh, revealing myself as a Japanophile or, a, or as an <laughs> otaku or something like that. But the book I'm bringing to the table is a short nonfiction book for, uh, called. Something like an autobiography written by the epic film director Akira Kurosawa. Oh. So when I say I I treat this book like Joan Didion treats Victory, is that if I'm ever like wanting to read a uh, write a script or like think about a major project, um, there's a lot of really good advice in here about starting like just dedicating yourself to focus and kind of like especially writing especially writing screenplays and stuff like that um but also don't you love that title something like an autobiography yeah um have you heard of this book before when when is it from Um, i haven't no something like an autobiography i have the edition so first of all the edition survived me moving 400 times it's still in my possession so that's one sign the first vintage books edition was 83, copyright 1982, Akira Kurosawa. So 82, which means that he wrote it 10 years before, actually 16 years before dying. He died in 1998 at the age of 88. Um, quick like overview of Akira Kurosawa. He's much more of a film director than he is an author. I think this is like one of the only, this is like the only book that he wrote. 
Um, if you don't know who Akira Kurosawa is, my classic advice of turn the podcast off and go watch some of his movies right now definitely applies. Um, what movies have you what's seen? Your, what's your top three? What's your top three? I've seen top Dreams. Mm-hmm. Uh, was he, did he do Rashomon? Yep. I saw that. Seven Samurai? Yep. Seven Samurai. Those are my, the three I've seen, I think. Okay, my top three. First of all, I can say that Kurosawa, I think he directed a total of like 25 or 26 film, feature films or something like that. And uh, I can say that he's the film director that I've probably seen the most out of his like the most films by one person. I think I've seen Kurosawa the most, although I don't think I've seen everything. Um, my top three would be Rashomon, Ran, and uh, it's then it's also a tie between two movies, Dodeska Den and Derzu Azala, which is a Russian movie that he made Japanese style, which is really, really fucking good. Um, I can get into some of the like film criticism part of it and why I love those movies so much, but really something like an autobiography is... Basically, Kurosawa, and I'm gonna read a good, like a like a big chunk of the preface, like a few paragraphs from the preface right now. But he kind of just had societal pressure to document himself. Um, he is well known in in the film world. Akira Kurosawa is one of the masters of the 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 film art form so far. Like I would say that it would be you'd be pretty hard pressed to find some director or somebody who would disrespect his legendary, um, you know, works. I was talking to a friend of mine who also works in the film industry recently. And I was kind of just, you know, you, you know, you always say the classic thing, like, why is this music so good? Or why are these books so good? Or, you know, why are these films so good? And I was just kind of ruminating being like, why are Kurosawa's movies so good? And, my friend Ben was just saying because they're literally masterpieces. <laughs> like they are just like, you know, they're, they're, you know, um, and just so classic, like, and, and he's also just very, you know, revered in our modern times for having put so much thought and so much foresight and effort and just amazing brilliance into what was at that time when he was making films, truly a different art form than it is today. I mean, he was, you know, obviously always exposing on film actual film and stuff like that and yeah. he's just a genius you know and and a lot of, and obviously surrounded himself with a lot of people that got major works of art completed um in a time when it wasn't as simple as it was today um yeah i feel like you can make that sort of statement about him you know being one of the best and, it, and it's a stronger argument just because i mean how long how long is the history of film it's a lot shorter than you know novels and you know writing right. and stuff you, you couldn't really yeah, you yeah make there's a, a comparison yeah yeah there's there's a little bit more kind of this guy is a pillar because the history of yeah. film is, is not as as extensive as the written word so going back to him actually writing about himself um and another connection that i want to make from your game earlier in the podcast today mark uh Karasawa's nice. favorite author dostoyevsky well, docu well documented that his favorite author is Dostoevsky, and he actually even adapted a book that I covered on the podcast called The Idiot. He adapted into a film, and it's actually a controversial film because um, Kurosawa is well known for having a crazy temper. Like he's pretty much known for sometimes throwing like insane fits and stuff like that. Um, but he's also well known to a concept 
uh, he he was an originator of a concept that still goes into the film industry today, which is basically the concept of a director having what's called final cut, which basically means that the director, no matter who is involved in the project, whether it be studio producers, editors, anything, um, Kurosawa was very connected to the idea that he have the final edit approval over his film <laughs> over his films. Um, Blade Runner. I thought Blade Runner was the origin of that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, he's not even the origin of that. He's just somebody no, that, who is a big proponent of it. Oh, I'm thinking of the Pink Floyd album. Never mind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so he, uh, the, the interesting thing about The Idiot, before I dive into the actual book that I read, is that he makes this version of The Idiot, which is actually, his cut of it was 265 minutes, which means it's four and a half hours. <laughs> <laughs> and um basically a lot of people said that it was it was first of all it was early on in his career he actually made it um around the same time as Rashomon which is in 1950 and um basically a lot of people say that the like a lot of critics say that it was detrimental to the work that he tried to make the idiot like too much of a one-to-one adaptation of the actual like events it was relocated into japanese so it was like happening instead of happening in st petersburg it was happening in hokkaido japan but basically he just tried to cover too much of the novel not doing too much adaptation work and then the studio cut it down to 166 minutes and it just performed terribly at the box office because it made no fucking sense um (laughs) which is which is funny like little story because it's before the explosion of his fame uh some people do complain about this book um something like an autobiography is about Kurosawa's childhood, adolescence, and leading up into him becoming a director for the first time for Toho Film. I know that you've seen that logo a million. Toho is like what opens like every Godzilla movie and also like every like classic Japanese. They were a huge, like a a studio as big as Disney. So he started working for them in his early years. But this book, something like an autobiography, actually only goes up to the time of 1950 and his first like majorly famous film, which is Rashomon. He directed several films before Rashomon. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten films before he actually directed Rashomon, which then went on to win like, you know, Venice International Film Festival. It's like one of the most like revered films of all time. Um, So that it only covers up until that point. So a lot of people are like, oh man, he should have wrote a book about, you know, how he gets involved in, you know, Russian filmmaking in the 70s. And he should have wrote a book about the 80s when George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola helped him uh, make Ran, which then went on to be like one of the most, you know, Academy Award winning foreign films of all time. Um, But this book only goes up into 1950. And uh, the preface gives a really good flavor for how Kurosawa approaches his own autobiography. And I would say, you know, even though this is a departure from my normal reading oeuvre of reading novels, novels, novels all the time, Kurosawa is such a creative storytelling person that reading this is like reading a novel. It's like a first person perspective on a famous director kind of coming into his own and, and what it what it takes to, to make films. So this is just the preface. This is Kurosawa in his own words, obviously translated into English. In the pre-war era, when itinerant home remedy salesmen still wandered the country, they had a traditional pattern for selling a potion that was supposed to be particularly effective in treating burns and cuts. 
A toad with four legs in front of in front and six behind would be placed in a box with mirrors lining the four walls. The toad, amazed at its own appearance from every angle, would break into an oily sweat. This sweat would be collected and simmered for 3,721 days while being stirred with a willow branch. The result was the marvelous potion. Writing about myself, I feel something like that toad in the box. I have to look at myself from many angles over many years, whether I like what I see or not. I may not be a ten-legged toad, but what confronts me in the mirror does bring on something like the toad's oily sweat. Circumstances have conspired without my noticing it to make me reach 71 years of age this year. Looking back over all this time, what is there for me to say except that a lot has happened? Many people have suggested that I write an autobiography, but I have never before felt favorably disposed towards this idea. This is partly because I believe that what pertains only to myself is not interesting enough to record and leave behind. More important is my conviction that if I were to write anything at all, it would turn out to be nothing but talk about movies. In other words, take myself, subtract movies, and the result is zero. Not long ago, not long ago, I gave up trying to refuse. However, I think my capitulation derives from the fact that I recently that recently I read the autobiography of the French film director Jean Renoir. Jean Renoir. I once had the occasion to meet him and even to be invited to dinner with him, over which we talked of many things. The impression I had of him from this en encounter was that he was not at all the type of person to sit down and write his autobiography. So for me to hear that he had ventured to do so was like having an explosion go off under me. In the foreword to that book, Jean Renoir writes the following. Many of my friends have urged me to write my autobiography. It is no longer enough for them to know that an artist has freely expressed himself with the help of a camera and a microphone. They want to know who the artist is. And further, he writes, the truth is that this individual of whom we are so proud is composed of such diverse elements as the boy he made friends with at nursery school, the hero of the first tale he ever heard, even the dog belonging to his cousin Eugene. We do not exist through ourselves alone, but through the environment that shaped us. I have sought to recall those persons and events which I believe have played a part in making me what I am. Kurosawa goes on to write, My own decision to write the present chapters, which is in a slightly different form, were first published in a Japanese magazine and were prompted by these words and by the terrific impression Jean Renoir left on me when I met him, the feeling that I would like to grow old in the same way that he did. There is one more person I feel I would be able to resemble as I grow old, the late American film director John Ford. I am also moved by regret that Ford did not leave us his autobiography. Of course, compared to these two illustrious masters, Renoir and Ford, I am no more than a little chick. But if many people are saying they want to know what sort of person I am, it's probably my duty to write something for them. I have no confidence that what I write will be read with interest, and I must explain that I have chosen, for reasons I discuss later, to bring my account to a close in 1950, the year in which I made Rashomon. But I have undertaken this series with the feeling that I must not be afraid of shaming myself, and that I should try telling myself the things I am always telling my juniors. So that's just a big chunk of the preface. Um... And, you know, it's it's not a huge book, but it's also not super short. You're getting 200 pages of Kurosawa in his own words. Uh, he drops in random notes on filmmaking. There's an epilogue and stuff like that. Um, he goes, you know, what do I do when I consider a film project? What's a good structure for a screenplay? What does a good script versus a bad script mean? And I would say, you know, just as John Gideon referenced victory for Conrad, if you're someone who's curious about, like, how do you make the best films of all time, uh, something like an autobiography is a good place to start where if you want to just inundate yourself with the creativity of 
someone who is an absolute master. And there's also really just amazing stories in here that are about pre and post world Japan, because, you know, Kurosawa was born March 23rd, 1910. He dies at the age of 88 in 1998, like I said, and he lived in pre and post world of World War Two Japan. Um, obviously an intense period. I think one scene that I can't recall the page number for, I was trying to find it before the podcast, but one scene that I really remember is that he has like an older brother or an older mentor that takes him and kind of like forces him to walk through some of the devastate the devastation after the nuclear bombs. Like he doesn't want to walk through like the ruined neighborhoods and stuff like that. And one, I think it's his older brother that makes him kind of, walk through the devastation and it's just like there's some really intense stuff in here there's intense stuff about when he first sees some of the most important films of his childhood um but he you know he tells it like a great narrative like that like that thing that he just talked about with the 10-legged toad i didn't even know a toad could have 10 legs um like a toad inside of the box of mirrors and you know he talks about his family and there's just a lot of really good anecdotes towards creativity and filmmaking but he's also a great storyteller so it's a first person narrative of of pre and post world war ii japan um another book like another theme that we've talked about today is you know getting from book to book um he talks about dostoevsky yeah yeah he talks about dostoevsky in here another great book on filmmaking that i actually don't own a copy of but i read when i was in university is and i can link the reference on twitter as well going from something like an autobiography um you know obviously kurosawa is not going to talk about how he has like a famous temper like he is famous for blowing up <laughs> blowing up on people he doesn't really like necessarily go into the idea and actually there's a really really great intro to this book as well um by at the time, someone who uh, there's this guy, Adi Bach, who wrote a book about Japanese cinema, and he was writing about all the Japanese cinema directors. And he gives a good kind of perspective on maybe why, you know, Kurosawa is a very enigmatic figure. People are scared of his temper. People are scared of his creativity. People are scared of his history. And he kind of goes into when he meets him for the first time in my edition, there's a translator's preface. And he's basically just saying, you know, it's kind of hard to meet someone as creatively and um, business in all aspects. Kurosawa is a very successful and legendary person. So some of that, you know, legend of his creative tantrums also come from how disruptive that can be. You know, like when someone like a Kurosawa or someone, you know, even like a like a like a major creative person like today, like. What is the story behind, you know, someone like a Tarantino being like, well, Brad Pitt has to star in my movie. You know, that stirs up a lot of shit. It stirs yeah. up, you know, millions of dollars and people get their projects moved around and, you know, whatever. And put that on top of someone who famously has like some pretty epic tantrums. And obviously there's going to be a reputation that gets around. Um, but all of this is to say that another book that led me from something like an autobiography into doing more research into Kurosawa is there's an amazing book on filmmaking by a woman named Teru, and I'm going to butcher this name, obviously Japanese name, Teruyo Nogami. She was the continuity and script assistant supervisor on Rashomon. And then she went on to work on, um, 
several of Kurosawa's most epic films like Ikaru, Seven Samurai, Kagamusha, and Dreams. And she wrote an amazing book that has her own personal illustrations called Waiting on the Weather, Making Movies with Akira Kurosawa. And that title actually comes from, you know, her her you know he used to throw these tantrums and have all these demands and stuff final cut from the studio and waiting on the weather is the title for when what he would get mad at the weather no he wouldn't get mad (laughs) at the weather what he would do what he would do is you know when you make a feature film you have you know 100 plus people employed and ready to go on any given day and apparently she she the the title comes from the tension that they would feel because he would literally have days scheduled for the studio and be like, nah, the weather's not right today. So we're not going to shoot. And the studio would be like, we're spending, you know, X amount, thousands of dollars per day on your new production. And you're not going to shoot because, you know, the sun isn't perfect. And he's like, yeah, that's right. So he would, he would not bend, he would not fold and stuff like that. But sometimes it comes through in the movies. For instance, there's a shot in Ran, which is a great, just such an amazing movie. It's a retelling of King Lear. He also adapted um, William Shakespeare several times. His telling of Throne of, uh, of Macbeth is named Throne of Blood, which is one of the best adaptations of Macbeth, bar none of all time. Um, but you know, there's a shot in Ran where a guy is running across, is, is you know galloping across the field, and a beam of sunlight is following him, literally following him, like someone's panning the sun. So uh, <laughs> you know, he's he was you know perfect. He's he's all about waiting on the weather. So um, for some creative inspiration for anything, sl- slowness. slowness, yeah, slowness, slowness. Yeah. Take it slow. Um, for any sort of creative inspiration for learning about someone who is a famous, famous 24 hour a day workaholic focused dedication, um, like he said in his own intro, Kurosawa minus movies equals zero. Um, he's just an amazing person and, you know, check out something like an autobiography, a book that I always go back to when I need to be inspired. Nice. So thanks for listening, everybody. This has been Hold shitty. on. Well, I got to oh, warn you. Whoa, 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 whoa. I, I wrote something down I wanted to say. Just, okay. Uh, just to let you know, once we release this. Premature. No, longer, no, no, you no longer have uh, plausible deniability if uh, you rip him off. Just warning. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I'm perfectly, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with saying in any, uh, any given time that I, ri- if I rip off Kurosawa correctly, then please cite me on it. If, if anything that I All make right. approaches Kurosawa level, I'll be happy to give him the credit. Um, but thanks for listening, everyone. This has been Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every Sunday on Spotify, SoundCloud, Instagram, Twitter, and iTunes at SBR the Podcast on Twitter and all those podcast platforms. Search for us SBR space the space the podcast. Uh, you can also email us sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Give us comments, suggestions, corrections, whatever you're feeling, and we'll see you next time. See ya. <laughs>